Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by paleontologist and invertebrate taxonomist, John Patterson. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. No worries. I want to start talking about the important topics. Shale ale. Where can I get some? What is it? Is it as good as it sounds? Shale ale, yes. Um, that was quite popular uh, when we were talking um, a couple of years ago now. So this came about because I've been doing work on Kangaroo Island where there's a pretty amazing fossil deposit that's 513 million years old called the Emu Bay Shale. And we've been digging there since 2007, so September 2007 to be exact. And uh, over that time, we've been going twice a year. And only in recent years, there was a brewery that popped up between the fossil site and where we where we were renting a house in Kingscote. <laughs> and we were quite excited by this because <laughs> we thought, well, a watering hole, gee, that's, that's going to be hard to take. We'll have to go and partake in some some beers and so that became a bit of a tradition that after the uh, a day of digging we would go and uh, quench our thirst and we knew our 10-year anniversary was coming up in September of 2017 so we one of us I don't know who it was might have been Russell Bicknell actually (laughs) (laughs) typical (laughs) who said why don't we have a an anniversary beer, and we'll talk to the brewer and see. Yeah, he's keen on doing something so like this that. This is ten years of working at that site. What's the yes? Okay. Yeah. So it was the ten year anniversary of digging Emu Bashal, and so we talked to the brewer, and he got really excited by it. And <laughs> yeah, w- terms like shale ale were were thrown up, and he actually had a really odd idea of grabbing some of the shale chips that are discarded um, and he would if we loaded a bucket full of shale chips and took it to him he could probably um, wash them and sterilize them and then filter the beer through the shale and we thought well yeah that (laughs) sounds novel (laughs) Um, and that's exactly what he did he uh, he we, we gave him the chips and he, uh, he ended up making a, a nice, it was a darker ale, um, which was filtered through this half billion year old shale. <laughs> and so we were effectively drinking, um, you know, liquid trilobites and <laughs> whatever else was in the rock. It tastes shaley, tastes... <laughs> it actually tastes really nice. It kind of was almost creamy-like, but um, yeah, it was, it was good fun. So is this... It wasn't like a fundraiser for research or anything. It was just for you guys to enjoy. Yeah, yeah it was just an <laughs> indulgence and another excuse to drink beer. <laughs> so I'm guessing it's all gone. It no. is all gone, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> he only made a couple of kegs. And um, we also had an event uh, during that trip where the, the Shale Hour was launched. And I think the the night that we had the presentations and things like this um, at least one keg went <laughs> in that <laughs> evening. So yeah. So the, this emu bechel, why why is it so important? What's there? 
Okay, well, it's it's not your run-of-the-mill fossil site. It's because anyone who thinks about fossils, they usually think dinosaurs. And when you think dinosaurs, you think skeletons or bones. Yeah. And in the invertebrate world, so I work on things that don't have a backbone or, a, or an endoskeleton like a dinosaur. Um, we used to finding the parts of the organisms that are readily preserved. So uh, a shell of a snail, for example. Um, I mentioned trilobites before. They have a, a an exoskeleton made of a mineral called calcite. Um, so these are the sorts of objects you tend to find as fossils, the hard parts of the organisms. But what we're finding in the Yumi Bay Shale are not only the hard parts, but the soft parts. So... Uh, to use a trilobite again as an example, we find the exoskeleton, in, in this case fully articulated, which again isn't that common, but we're also finding the soft parts like the antennae and the walking legs, which uh, are quite rare in the fossil record. And we've found um, dozens and dozens of species now, and a lot of them are just purely soft-bodied. So if we weren't getting the right sort of preservational conditions at this site... Um, you wouldn't see anywhere near the diversity that we're finding. And is there something about that site that makes it possible, something about the geology there, or is it just sheer luck that these things have happened? Well, I guess with any fossil, it is luck that it's been preserved, <laughs> or any organism that's it's been preserved as a fossil, is, is there's a, there is a degree of luck to it. Um, but yes, you're right, The there is special conditions at this site that we're we're still working out what's going on exactly we're, we're still trying to work out some of the geochemistry at the moment but from what we understand so far there are a few factors involved in in getting this exceptional preservation so one is rapid burial as you would expect um but also a key ingredient is uh low oxygen conditions so as far as we understand where where we're getting the um, the mother load of all these exceptionally preserved fossils, the sediments are giving us um, indications that the uh, seafloor, and particularly within the sediment, there would have been very low or sometimes zero oxygen. So what that does is take away any microbial activity that might decay organisms. Um, it'll remove other organisms like scavengers coming in and ripping things apart. So um, the fact that things are being buried rapidly and there's that low oxygen or zero oxygen from time to time just allows for these organisms organisms to be preserved really nicely. Mm. And so I guess it's not just about finding soft-bodied organisms themselves, but finding the soft bits of the hard-bodied organisms that you'd never usually see in other fossil sites, right? Exactly, yep. So one of the things you were looking at was eyes of critters that hadn't been seen before. Yes. So I I would picture like a compound eye. I just assume that would be considered a, a hard bit that's right. covered in exoskeleton, but do these just not fossilize very well in, in specimens? Uh, no, surprisingly. Mm. Um I keep, I keep talking about trilobites here, but trilobites are another good example where because their entire exoskeleton is made of calcite, even the lenses 
in their eyes, in their compound eyes, are also made of calcite. So we know a lot about trilobite eyes, but when it comes to pretty much any other type of organism, um, even other types of arthropods, um, we don't tend to see details of the visual surface, so you know individual facets. Mm. And when you go to places... Uh, that are also Cambrian in age. So I've, I've been talking about the Emu Bay Shale. That's from the Cambrian period. Um, there are other really famous Cambrian fossil sites around the world. Probably the the most famous would be the Burgess Shale in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a little Burgess Shale is a little younger than the Emu Bay Shale, but the preservation there is exquisite. Um, you can see down to micron scale features, but Amazingly, uh, when you look at, say, the eyes of certain arthropods from the Burgess Shale, they just appear as blobs. You know, we know their eyes, they're in the right position, they're the right mm. shape, size, etc. But when you zoom right in on those eyes, they're just carbon films. And that's a, a fairly common mode of preservation in a lot of Cambrian sites that have exceptional preservation. And so even though you can see a lot of great detail in Burdishale arthropods, you don't see details of, of the eyes. Um, where in the Emu Bay Shale, again, this is something we're still trying to work out what's going on, but there's a lot of uh, mineralization of the soft tissues going on and that those minerals can um, be different kinds. So we see... Um, some structures preserved as calcium phosphate. Um, sometimes we see things preserved as pyrite, uh, even though it's been weathered a bit now and turned to iron oxide or rusted, essentially. But it's because of these early stage mineralization processes going on soon after burial. So it's a, it's a very early stage fossilization process. So... Uh, this is occurring right across the body of some of these arthropods. So when we look at some of our arthropod eyes, we actually see the facets of so the compound eyes. Explain the eyes we're talking about. They're not our type of eyes, big balls that blink and things. They're more like insect eyes that Exactly. Are these almost like a a mosaic if yeah, you like. Yeah, hexagonal pattern that you see on the outside, all the individual facets that make up a big patch of eye, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So when we um when we found eyes of a particular arthropod, which is considered sort of the apex predator at the time, uh an animal called Anomalocaris, which is also known from Burdishale and other sites, um, the eyes of, of Anomalocaris were known from places like Burdishale. But again, as I said, they were just these carbon films with no detail on mm. them, but the the anomalocaris eyes from the Emu Bay Shale actually show every single facet. So we know that an animal like anomalocaris had over sixteen thousand lenses in one eye. <laughs> it's so it's pretty amazing resolution. Yeah. Something that old. Yeah, because yeah, I mean lots of insects now will have tens of facets in their eyes and I think, you know, dragonflies have what, thirty thousand something and they're considered the you know, apex visual predators thing. So Exactly. These anomaly cars were up there in terms of uh, the the resolution of their vision, I guess. 
absolutely. I mean, if when I say sixteen thousand lenses in, in each eye, that's what's preserved. There's yeah. a good <laughs> chance because these things are kind of pancaked in the rock. There's a chance that if you could somehow see underneath that on the side that's buried, yeah, yeah, yeah. there could be even more. Yeah. And if that's the case, then anomalocara size could have rivaled dragonflies, modern dragonflies, mm. no problem. What do, what do they look like? How big are these critters? What are we talking about? Yeah, they're kind of weird. They're <laughs> <laughs> they're I always like to see how people describe these trail bites and horseshoe crabs and stuff. So anomalocaris... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, it's uh, it's a bit of a, it looks like a bit of a chimera actually. Yeah. It's um well it's got barbecue tongues at one end and <laughs> kind of it's <laughs> well it's a bit, it's an animal it's about a meter in length yeah and up the head end it had two grasping appendages so these were were segmented claws if you like um and e- each one of those had had spines that it could probably use to grasp prey items and it would probably grab um, its prey with with these frontal appendages and then pass it to a ventral mouth under the head which again is weird it's like something (laughs) out of star wars um some star wars creature it's this circular structure it looks a bit like a pineapple ring except the pineapple ring has serrations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, also on the head, as I've been talking about, we, we have the eyes. They're um, really well-developed compound eyes, no doubt for hunting. And then the rest of the body is kind of strange. It's The, the best animal to use as an analogue would probably be uh, a cuttlefish, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got this sort of cylindrical type body with flaps down the side. Now, with a cuttlefish, obviously, it, the flaps are one piece on each side, but Anomalocaris had a series of flaps uh, or swim flaps. Mm. And then right at the end, it would have had these tail flukes. So it, <laughs> it is a really bizarre animal. <laughs> and it's, I, I describe it as, as an arthropod on its way to becoming a real arthropod <laughs> because it doesn't actually have a series of legs down its body like you yeah. see in an ant or a centipede. Um, the only thing that really makes Anomalocaris an arthropod are uh, the jointed frontal appendages mm-hmm. and the compound eyes. But the rest of it, yeah, if you took, took the head away, you would actually <laughs> struggle to classify this thing. So it's... Appendages at the front, the bitey things were like articulated so they could move and pass food into its pineapple hole. Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that'd be a great like educational activity to do for paleo, like get students to draw an animal based on a spoken description, like a police sketch artist. Yes. <laughs> you could describe it well enough to get people to draw it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so these were... I mean, were they the top predators in terms of their size as well? Uh, yes. Uh, there's really nothing in the Cambrian Oceans that would have rivaled Anomalocaris mm. and and kin um, in terms of size. Yeah. It's, it's certainly one of the biggest animals swimming around. Yeah. So why aren't these the poster boys of the Cambrian? Why, are, why have trailer bites become so... Uh, popular. Why are they the poster child of the Cambrian explosion? 
Well, I guess trilobites are way more common. Mm. So, as I said earlier on, uh, finding the hard parts of organisms is is more common than than finding all the soft, squishy bits. So, mm. Anomalocaris, for example, is is largely a soft animal. Um, it's made of you know, organic compounds as opposed to having a mineralized skeleton of some kind. Mm-hmm. So, trilobites have been known for a long time, and they're extremely abundant and diverse in the Cambrian. So, uh, so much so that they're used as the primary dating tools for Cambrian rocks. Um, whenever paleontologists or geologists, for that matter, are interested in in dating rocks of Cambrian age, they will tend to to look for the the trilobites and and uh, identify them, and it they'll be indicative of certain time slices through the Cambrian. So I'm always amazed at. Well, how much detail you can get in a fossil or how little detail you can get in a fossil. Like I remember hearing about work that was being done where they can actually get the pigment granules out of feathers, like fossilized feathers, and use that to figure out what colours these feathers probably were. Like you were saying before, is that something to do with that early mineralization process that determines how much detail you're going to get in your fossil? Yes, that seems to be the case with a lot of fossil sites, um, certainly Imi Bay Shale, the, the early stage mineralization processes going on soon after burial uh, are helping preserve that really fine detail. Um, it's, it's bec- that's really why when you go to places like Burgess Shale or Chenjiang in South China, other these other places that preserve body fossils of Anomalocaris, um, you won't see the detail of the eyes there because you don't necessarily have these early stage mineral mineralization processes going on. So in that regard, Emu Bay Shale is quite special, uh, even though others would argue, well, Burgess Shale is better because of diversity and <laughs> level of detail of other features and things like that. But really, it's it's all... It depends on what you want to look at. Um, in some ways, the Emu Bashal is, is the best in the world for, for looking at certain things, like eye, the evolution of eyes. So what is it that makes a fossil special and worth sticking in a museum and researching as opposed to putting it in a tourist knick-knack shop? Or well, just whoever found it in the first place? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I... Look, the the thing with fossil collecting and particularly you know, amateur collectors going to fossil sites, I think it's actually really important to have amateur collectors go into sites and uh, spend the time, you know, breaking rock open because finding fossils does take a lot of a lot of time uh, and patience and. Uh, some of the collectors I've worked with in the past have been really good with if they find something quite unusual or rare or something, just anything that's scientifically important, they're quite good at just handing it over. And um, in some cases, you know, we've I've rewarded collectors in naming things after them. <laughs> um, and some of the other paleos here at UNE, you know, someone like Phil Bell has, has done the same with the dinosaurs at Lightning Ridge. 
Um, so amateur collectors play a really important role in paleontology. Um, I guess where it gets tricky is when you have some collectors who aren't quite as ethical about things and they might go and just try and mine out a, a site as much as possible to, to get trophy specimens, mm. and whether it's for their own collection or whether they're looking to sell them on. Um, obviously, there's laws around um, selling fossils and um, trading them overseas and things like that. Mm. Um, it, it is a little bit of a minefield when it comes to the law. Yeah. Um, and it changes from state to state as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think collectors out there, uh, there's like with anything, there's a mix. And some are great and and some maybe not so great. <laughs> so if you say were to find something on your own property, do you earn it? What's what is the law then? I'm asking for legal advice here from <laughs> Oh yeah, see this is where it gets tricky. Um as far as I understand it, if it's on private property and it's within a certain depth. Oh, all right. Uh because it actually some of it falls under mining acts and, and so on. <laughs> so if if any I think it's within the first half a meter from the surface or something like that. Don't mm. quote me on this. I could be wrong. I'd have to go and check this. But um yeah, it's down to a certain depth that it belongs to you if it's your property. Um beyond that it's crown property, I believe. Mm. Um but you know laws change um uh, fairly often. So I don't know if that has changed in recent times, mm. um, certainly mining laws and so on change regularly. So I'm not not quite up to speed on, yeah. on what the current <laughs> the current situation is. Because there is thought of fossils as these you know, geological hen's teeth that anything that pops up has to be preserved because it could be used for research you know, decades, centuries from now, depending on what we can do with those fossils. I'm always weirded out then whenever you see them. I don't know. A, incorporated into a bench top at a, a an office somewhere is that i mean are some fossils just that common that it's just like hey you know go for it uh yeah well there there certainly are sites around the world where um you know i've been to certain places even in australia where there's more fossil than rock <laughs> you know you you're literally treading on them and and, and so on so I think where there are fossil sites that are very prolific and there are certain species that are abundant and, you know, one going into a piece of jewellery or <laughs> someone's pocket <laughs> or whatever, um, I I don't think there's any harm in that. Mm. It's only when there are certain fossils found that are that are rare um, and they have a lot of scientific value, um, that, yes, it would be good if, if those sorts of specimens made their way into um, public repositories, mm. you know, like a museum, where researchers can study them in perpetuity. But um, that doesn't always happen, mm. because often with, with rare specimens that are scientifically valuable, they also tend to be commercially valuable. <laughs> and then we start having issues with the black market and yeah. yeah, things making their way to auction and they go to the highest bidder. And yeah, that, that can be really depressing as a paleontologist <laughs> seeing 
some of How these. Do you put that on your grant application form. <laughs> we need to outbid someone at this auction. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> look, if you can get some sort of philanthropist to to back you, then you might be able to do something like that. But that that doesn't happen very often. I remember seeing pictures of uh, was some government building in China that had all these huge big pillars that I thought were marble, and it turned out there were cores of stromatolites that oh, were just right. incorporated into this building. Uh, I, I just assumed that, that there would have been some sort of law against that, <laughs> but I, maybe I just don't understand geology. Well, not necessarily uh, in terms of you know, there being a law against it. it. Again, if it was in China, it, it could be absolutely fine. It may have mm. come from a commercial quarry um, where there just happened to be stromatolites preserved there. Um, I've certainly seen that in limestone and marble quarries where, yeah, they've been mined for commercial reasons, bench tops or hmm. general building stone, but uh, they can be riddled with marine fossils. Not necessarily super important. Um, it just depends on what's what's preserved there and how well documented it, it's that site has, has um, and whether it's been worked on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so th- this sort of stuff's happening all the time. Um, the the important thing is to, to try and document everything before <laughs> something <laughs> completely disappears. So wh- how do you gauge what is important? Is it a specimen you already have, but this one is fossilized a lot better, or new species or new records of species, all of the above? It's usually all of the above. Um, sometimes, even with with particular species that might be quite common, um, if you happen to find a specimen that's showing something quite different, um, it might be a new feature that we weren't aware of before or it's preserved in a particular way. It might be in a life position or it might be caught in the act of doing something. Um, that that sort of fossilised behaviour is quite rare in general. Um, but it just sometimes takes the right blow of the hammer being you know, right place right time <laughs> um so things like that are, are certainly worth worth keeping or or, or um, putting in a a museum but certainly new species or rare species where um you've got more of the the organism preserved certainly yeah the, the sorts of things that paleontologists are after mm. all the time so when you're driving through small towns and you pass a little local lapidary club market stall, do you have to go and look and see if they've discovered any gold? Uh, <laughs> uh, usually the sorts of specimens you see in a in a market stall, <laughs> um, you've seen a hundred times before. Uh, so they would have would have come from some of these fossil sites or quarries where they're being mined commercially. Mm. Um, so there's a, going back to trilobites again, there's a, there's a species from Utah called Elleratia kingi and they find those in the thousands and I could pretty much guarantee you could go into any fossil or rock shop in the world and they're probably selling specimens <laughs> of Elleratia kingi because <laughs> they're just so common. Yeah. Um, and they just flood the market, you know, the fossil market with them. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's kind of not that different to working on living things, right? You don't need to stick every ant you collect in the museum as a reference 
specimen. You know, one or two will do, and the rest of them can. Yeah, get well, that's right. The bin. <laughs> I mean, actually, one thing that we're doing on on Kangaroo Island when we're collecting Imi Bay shower fossils is that there there is a trilobite species that is really abundant to the point where we're also finding thousands of them. Um, in fact, we did a a little survey of a of a surface rock surface within the quarry that we're digging and there were over 600 individuals per square meter <laughs> and because we've got such high abundance of this one species what we tend to do is uh, unless there is something unusual about it because this thing's been described before and unless there's something strange like it's in the middle it looks like it's in the middle of molting its exoskeleton um, or there's some other weird preservational feature we will tend to just put them in boxes and they'll get wrapped up in newspaper and sent back to the museum where they're used for um, outreach programs and we hand them out to kids uh, as, a, as an education tool. Mm. Um, so given that we've been collecting on Kangaroo Island for, what, 12 years now, I think we're almost at a point where every... South Australian school kid might have <laughs> this particular trilobite <laughs> in their drawer at home. <laughs> so this then, Ibel, is this a Lagerstadt? This is a word I just learned. Ah, Lagerstadt. What's yes. a Lagerstadt? Uh, so it it's um, it's a German term that well people translate it in different ways. I was always of the understanding that it meant mother load. Oh. So it basically just, yeah, it, it, I think it originally came from, it was originally a mining term, which hence, you know, the translation to mother load. So if you find, <laughs> you know, a, uh, the mother load of a, of a particular metallic ore, then I think that's what was applied, that term was applied, at least in Germany. But it was a German paleontologist called Dolph Seilacher who actually translated it over to to paleontology and um so if you work on on a Lagerstadt um you're working on a very special fossil site where um it could be that it's just very rich you know there's an abundance of of animals preserved or other organisms preserved or it could be that you're getting this exceptional preservation with soft tissues and so on this is an official paleontology word. No, it's not just paleontology slang. <laughs> no, it's no, a it's a it's a recognised term. <laughs> yep. So you're a professor here in the Paleoscience Research Centre, uh, which I think, if people haven't figured out by now, isn't just about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole lot of other stuff goes on. What what other stuff goes on in this research centre? Well, we kind of cover a lot of bases. Actually, the only thing that we don't really do a lot of research on is paleobotany although we've um just in the last few weeks we've had a one of our master's students going and looking at a uh, a preserved log jam site down on the coast so it appears that we are now in fact <laughs> branching into paleobotany too but uh that aside um well there's you know the stuff that i've i've been talking about I, I kind of am interested in um the camp what's called the cameron explosion which is the time in earth history when the first true animals started to evolve and and radiate 
and we've got a few people in the centre working on various aspects of the Cambrian explosion. Um, we have people working on microfossils as well, um, of all kinds, again, all kinds of organisms. Uh, and we have, we seem to have a huge number of vertebrate paleontologists <laughs> 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 working on, uh, mostly dinosaurs, I guess, but we do have other people working on, uh, reptiles, mammals. Uh, so Steve Rowe's lab, for example, um, they're very much interested in, um, well, modern animals as well, obviously, because it's important to understand how modern animals work before you can start to understand how a, an extinct organism might be put together or function. Um, but Steve's lab, they uh, have looked at megafauna uh, quite a bit in the past. So there's there's all kinds of all kinds of things going on here. It's even people doing stuff on. Uh, hominid skulls and things like that as well. You're covering all yep. bases here. Hominids and primates and you name it. <laughs> so when you've got such a diverse research team, what is the, the overarching theme? Is it just that these things are dead? Or, <laughs> or is this just an administrative grouping? Is there some sort of similarity between, uh, I guess, the, the mindset of the researchers here? Well... I guess, we, yeah, the, the eclectic mix that we have here now is just, that's just how the, the research centre has naturally evolved. Mm. Excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> but one thing that we have tried to do with recruiting new staff or bringing in new students is to make sure we have a diverse skill set. So the reason why that's important is because even though I might specialise in trilobites or really old arthropods or whatever, um, someone like Phil Bell might specialise in dinosaurs, we don't necessarily just know a lot about our organismal group. We usually have a few other tricks up our sleeves in terms of methodologies and um, knowing how, how to operate certain um, scientific instruments and things like this. Mm. So what what we try to do is cross-pollinate if you like in that um i might i might work with someone across the hall who is a dinosaur expert but he happens to know a lot about um a particular methodology which i w can be applied to my fossils so it's a way of of um exploring new avenues that you couldn't necessarily do on your own i always i'm amazed at the weird groupings you have in science i mean are keep hearing about things like a marine science conference where I'm wrecking my brain trying to think what the hell are these people talking about just we really like being on boats <laughs> you know, marine science is a pretty broad term yeah. you could have people doing fish behavior or algal genomics you know there's not a whole lot of overlap there but it sounds like at least within paleo you have things like methodology needed to work with mineralized specimens or reconstructions and things like that that you can all collaborate on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if one of us happens to be working on a particular fossil that um, has certain features or you want to ask a particular a question about you know, what might have happened to it or what it might be related to, there's a, a number of different things. But if you don't necessarily have the right skills or, or knowledge on how to tackle some of those 
things, if there happens to be someone in the group who has expertise to go, oh, well, I know the exact method you could use to work that out, mm. then that's when the collaboration starts and you, and you get all these kinds of wonderful synergies going on all the time within mm. the, the center, which makes it a really great place to do research because um, there's always those synergistic collaborations going on. So, broad question, what does it take to be a good paleontologist? You're in a building surrounded by these people. Do you see similarities in, in type? Uh, well, <laughs> you don't have to name I, names. <laughs> you, <laughs> I have to be careful here. Um, oh, that's that's a tricky question. Because um, it's a particular type of uh, way of viewing the world, This this fascination with the the mystery with what you can't see yeah i i well one one thing that springs to mind about a commonality amongst paleontologists would just be um being passionate Hmm. i think um yeah we we get out of bed in the morning and are excited to go to work and (laughs) and, every every day and work on these things amazing john (laughs) um I don't know. It's it. That is a it is a tricky question, um, because you know in any in any field really, um, there's there's a mixture of people, um, in terms of you know personality types and and traits that make them successful and mm. and or make some paleontologists more successful than others, but I, I would certainly say, um, yeah, enthusiasm and and. Uh, a strong work ethic is is a common thread. It's a very diplomatic answer there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I would love to see some sort of sociology research on divisions between fields. Because even we spoke to Phil on this podcast ages ago, who talked about divisions within the dinosaur world, that the people who work on the big carnivorous dinosaurs tend to be big alpha types <laughs> <laughs> as well. I definitely kind of see that in, in animal behavior. Research as well. I can I can pick a bird person from about a hundred meters away. Right. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, like any field, you you always um, can see patterns emerging when, in terms of <laughs> what what people work on. Um, and you, yeah, you're right. You can see it at conferences. You just sort of look <laughs> around the room, and you see the groups forming. Yeah. And you go, oh, okay, I know who they are. <laughs> yep, I can probably predict what they're working on. Yeah. Um, but, and, it, and it's the same in, in, in with what I, I work on, um, which is kind of early animal evolution in, in this sort of field. Um, there are people who work on a geologic period just before the Cambrian, which is called the Ediacaran. And this is where organisms are really bizarre they they've become quite big some things mm. are the size of you know a bath mat um which for the ediacaran period's big and uh they look a bit like animals but they don't really have the right features in some respects to be true animals or you wouldn't necessarily classify them as true animals so the ediacaran or ediacaran paleontology is really cutthroat <laughs> <laughs> and there, it, it seems that all the specialists that work on these fossils are really at each other's throats all the time. <laughs> and they're trying to, if they're not trying to attack each other, 
or at least verbally at, at conferences. They're trying to do it in print in, mm. in their publications. So it's a pretty it can be a pretty hostile environment if you work on certain topics. But yeah. there are there are other topics where everyone gets along just fine. Um, it makes <laughs> you wonder though like how much of your career path leading up to this point was your fascination with these particular critters or questions as opposed to just finding the people you like to work with. Like I definitely think that's a big part of where I ended up. I started off, I did a marine science undergrad and went hanging out with all the marine scientists and I'm going to totally throw them under the bus here, <laughs> but they're also, they they tend to be kind of alpha jocks, you know, the, the, the kids that grew up on the North Shore of Sydney, you know, the, <laughs> the <laughs> type of marine science people. And I think I'd, as fascinated as I was with marine biology, I just kind of looked around and went, these these aren't my people. <laughs> yeah, yep. and I just so happen to make friends in the entomology world and sort of fit in, and 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 I wonder how much of my career path was down to that as opposed to fascination with the science itself. Yeah, well, I've certainly seen examples of mm. of that as well, where people have have started off. They've they've even gone quite a way down the the track. Yeah, maybe as far as their masters or even PhD. But then by the end of the PhD, they're like, no, this is. <laughs> Well, it's not a case of this is not for me in a in a scientific sense. It's uh, <laughs> this is not for me because I cannot stand the people. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't say it's that common. But yes, I have seen yeah. that. So, at what point did you become a Cambrian kid? Well, I I guess I was always into minerals and fossils from a young age. Um, probably late primary school or early high school. And for some reason, I just gravitated towards trilobites. And um, because you can get you know, so many different shapes and sizes and forms of these things. And I realized when I was, when I'd started uni, that um, the most um, diversity of on some of the most interesting questions to be answered, perhaps using trilobites, um, was in the Cambrian. So uh, that's kind of just a fell into it that way, mm. if, if you like. But I, I guess my my target or my goal was always to to study trilobites, and it just so happened that the Cambrian seemed to be the place. So it was an actual goal. This is something you remember thinking ahead about back starting your career. Yeah, well, I'm I'm one of these few people that liked dinosaurs, you know, from the mm. age of three or something or five, and um, I did grow out of the dinosaur thing, <laughs> but I yeah, I, I evolved cliche, into liking no. <laughs> I evolved into liking trilobites instead, <laughs> and that uh, that never went away. <laughs> so what's next then? No, the dinosaur drawer isn't there. You're gonna one day. Dip your toes into T-Rex fossils? Uh, <laughs> no. Um, I guess the only way I would probably fall into dinosaur paleontology would be if, as I was saying before, if I had a particular knowledge or mm. skill at something that a dinosaur worker needed. Um, so having worked on exceptionally preserved Cambrian fossils and understanding fossilization processes and so on. Maybe down the track, someone mm. who works on vertebrates or dinosaurs will come to me and say, do you want to work on 
how this thing was preserved. Mm. And yeah, maybe maybe I wouldn't rule it out. Put it that way. <laughs> well, I'm hoping one day a, a fossilized praying mantis turns up that I can somehow help with, and then I can do my toes in paleontology. It'd be great. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, if people want to find out more about your work and the work that goes on here. They can look it up online, right? Yes, they can. Yep, they can Google. Well, either my name or um, <laughs> Google Paleoscience Research Centre at UNE. Yep. All right. No worries. Well, I'll leave you to it and maybe we can check in again later on and, and see how it's all going, whether you have dipped your toes into the, the dinosaur world. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> no sounds worries. Good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. And thank you guys for listening. Check out more at InSitruScience.com or follow us on social media at InSitruScience. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>